This is the Mike Garrigan Podcast. Welcome to episode 20 of 24 in the Transitions Podcast series from MikeGarrigan.com. My name is Mike Garrigan. In the late spring of the year 2000, Collapsus was a well-oiled touring machine. We had about 60 shows under our belt already that year, and we would play another 100 or so before the year's end. Uh, we had a, a, bind, a binder of contracts, uh, a detailed tour itinerary, and a pretty well-seasoned road crew, which is why what happened to us just outside of Biloxi, Mississippi, that spring, why that was so surprising. As we drove across the Mississippi border, uh, Kyle, our tour manager, turned to me and said, you're not going to believe where we're playing tonight, G. And before I could, could ask, Kyle said, a tough man contest. And it's legit. I remember asking, it's like, totally, I have the contract right here, he said. And, and Kyle was driving, but he was able to fling the binder backwards into the first captain's chair of Home One, our van. I think we actually called the van the Red Elk because it had a giant elk on the spare tire cover. And the van, of course, was red. Um, but we watched enough Star Wars in that rolling tin can to merit some kind of alliance nod. But anyway, I, I turned to the contract book to the to the date of the show, and the contract, it was on our agent's letterhead, uh, and the purchaser, and the, the venue, and let's just call the venue a roadhouse for the, the sake of keeping things as general as possible. Uh, the, the venue had paid our, our full rate, and uh, the local rock station, it said on the contract, was going to promote the show and was also going to provide sound. And this is in Biloxi, I asked. Kyle nodded and continued uh, to listen to Sunvolt on the van stereo while Carlos uh, watched the Marklar episode of South Park for the nth time. And I was reading Clive Barker's Galilee at the time, I remember. Um, and it wasn't his best work, but it wasn't bad either. And uh, two hours later, I remember Kyle, he stopped the van and he pulled over into a sit-go just off of the highway that was going out of Biloxi rather than into Biloxi. And he stepped out of the van he dialed a number on uh, the band cell phone. We only had <laughs> one phone. And, and he spoke expectantly uh, from the side of the road. And Inwardly, I'm fairly certain that at that moment, the rest of the van maybe felt that Kyle had made a wrong turn and he had gotten us lost. And But when he returned to the driver's seat, he started up the van and just continued going down the road. And so Kyle preempted the, the peanut gallery in the back by telling us, so I just talked to the club, and apparently they're on the outskirts of Biloxi. And the guy said to keep going down this road and about 10 more miles, and then uh, the turn is on the left. And after about five minutes of driving from Biloxi, the, the roadside was a little more than a mess of trees and swampland. And um, unless this was some kind of swamp oasis, we all felt sort of a general sense of disturbance <laughs> with where we were going. And um, so, you know, we turned left down a side road, and the road turned into gravel about a half mile in, and then it appeared. Uh, if you've ever seen 
the film Roadhouse, uh, where Jeff Healy plays behind a chicken wire stage and the clientele is a bit rough, know that even that is the Hollywood version of reality. And this place looked like a cross between an, an abandoned Kiwanis club, a, a four-wide trailer, and an oil slick. Um, we debated leaving. Uh, Sam, our guitar tech, volunteered to do a bit of recon. And we all agreed to this, and it was here that we made uh, our mistake. Uh, even today, uh, if you've ever run into Sam, he, he kind of looks like a fourth member of the Jimi Hendrix experience with a wild afro and, and authentic vintage threads. And, well, he walked through the club once, and but with his presence, he, he offered a dead giveaway that the band had arrived. And you know, Sam entered the club through the back door and then exited through the front door. And as he approached the van, he sort of accelerated his walk to a, a near run and before he made it to the van, this sunburnt man stumbled out of the club, and he ran to the van and, and said, "Collapses." And he told us how excited he was that we were there, although he, he looked like he was on a, a third day of, of uh, drinking. <laughs> so, um, a crew of guys in shorts and, and midriffs came to the van immediately and offered to help load us in, and I'm not really sure who unlocked the trailer, but before we knew it, all of our gear was inside the club. And for some reason, perhaps as a mix of curiosity or and necessity, we, we ventured into this dark, dank innards of this roadhouse here. And um, inside, we saw uh, the club owner uh, position our anvil cases in the place that he imagined would be the stage. And Ten feet away towards the bar uh, on the side of the wall was a three-foot by three-foot by three-foot sound system cube that it didn't look unlike a church PA, if you've ever seen those, but um, it had more wireless microphones than inputs. But it looked like it could amplify sound, but it had some critical deficiencies if it were going to be used uh, by a band, namely in the line of inputs. Um, but perhaps the most disturbing attraction, and I say attraction because this was obviously what the club was about and, and why we were there as evidenced by, one, the amount of space required for this attraction, and two, the handwritten and weathered rules on the wall above the attraction. Uh, there was blood and sweat stains on this burlap floor and twine on a boxing ring, and uh, as Kyle said, this was a tough man contest, and um, what we didn't know was that uh, it wasn't a properly sanctioned tough man contest, and we were stuck here at the club, and we were contracted to be the entertainment between rounds. You know, what I didn't know at the time was that there's an idea in contract theory called supervening illegality, and that sort of makes a contract void or voidable. I haven't really studied it yet, so I'm not exactly sure, but it's sort of as if it, it, it hasn't ever existed. And, you know, because there was something illegal going on and we didn't know it, uh, we could probably, we probably could have left upon learning the nature of the gig with no duty to perform. Um, unfortunately, given the nature of the environment and the High probability of some form of concealed weapons on the premises. If we did leave, there could have been physical repercussions. Um, you know, we were going to play in a sold-out room 
in New Orleans in a few days. And we wanted to arrive without any broken bones and with everyone's eyeballs working. So the way we saw it, we really only had one choice, <laughs> play the gig and hope for the best. Um, but in the end, the, the actual gig wasn't that bad. It turned out that a, a friend of the friend was a DJ on the local radio station, and he owned the PA system, so he donated it. And, you know, he hung a station banner in front of the cube and I think he told me he had interned at the station in the past, but I, I guess that could count as radio promotion. But everyone there was so drunk that I, I doubt they could remember uh, that we were even there. But we played two 45-minute sets, and uh, one in between matches, and then one at the end of the fight program. And the actual Tough Man contest was difficult to watch and, and you know this wasn't the movies this was real life pummeling real brain damage and real blood and in the end the infamous tough man contest was a gig that we all looked back on and had a good laugh in the moment though i, I would be remiss to say <laughs> that i wasn't mortified for my life and the funny thing was was that everything the roadhouse did appeared legit to our agent. Uh, they paid our fee. They technically involved a radio station, so the gig seemed like a good idea on paper. We were really interested in getting on the radio. Um, the Tough Man contest, you know, probably seemed like something out of that Dennis Quaid movie, Tough Enough, and that's what I imagine it being, uh, perhaps brutal, but totally legal. Um, and when we talked with our agent and manager on a highly charged conference call the next morning, they were baffled as to how this even happened. I mean, it just got totally under the radar and, and blindsided them. They're like, what? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the lesson we learned, though, was that, you know, if a gig looks remotely dangerous, don't hesitate to leave. I mean, bands have refused, refused to play for less legitimate reasons. I remember one time a band didn't play because it was too cold outside, and they actually uh, breached their contract. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, if you were at that show, you know what I'm talking about. Touring is the most labor-intensive aspect of being a musician. In the beginning, it's, it's common for a single singer-songwriter or a band to perform every single role in a touring group. Um, often, band members will take on many of the roles themselves until they have the resources to hire specialized custodians uh, of those roles. In Collapsus, we had a tour manager who doubled as our front-of-house technician, as well as a stage manager whose primary role was uh, guitar tech. Uh, then the rest of the band did the rest, including merchandise, road crew, and self-monitoring. And At home, we had a manager who was uh, a point person for strategy, public relations, and promotion, and then in New York, we had an agent who handled our club bookings. The six basic components of a touring group, aside from the performers, uh, of course, are the agent, the tour manager, the front-of-house engineer, the stage manager, the merch guy, and the roadies. Again, any group who's just starting out or has under, let's say, 10,000 active email list members is most likely going to have a significant overlap in these roles, often doubling up or tripling up in duties. Uh, 
The point in describing these roles separately, though, is to illustrate just the many forces that are at play when a band comes to town. I noticed a shift in how our band was treated when an agency booked us as compared to when we booked ourselves under the advice of our management. An agency is licensed to contract your labor. Uh, For that reason, a manager isn't supposed to book you, although I'll admit it is almost impossible to get started without everyone doing as much as they can. But having a contract issued from an agency is going to show clout. It's going to show seriousness, and it commands a certain authority over the purchaser. Once we started being booked by a large agency, we had better paying gigs. We had bigger audiences and and more opportunities. An agent is what I think the most important member of a touring group, although we didn't have one in place until just before our major label record came out. And an agent can get you better gigs, and better gigs means a potential for a larger fan base, and a larger fan base translates into a better position from which to make a living as an artist. The tour manager is is critical once you and your band are playing more than, let's say, 100 shows a year. Uh, The tour manager is responsible for advancing performances, getting paid at the end of the night, coordinating the disbursement of per diems, coordinating a tour itinerary, coordinating travel accommodations, and most importantly, just basically getting the band to where it needs to be when it needs to be there. Uh, Jeremy, with, with whom I played in Athenaeum, once told a, a joke that pretty much sums up the thankless job of a tour manager. One day, a singer, a guitar tech, and a tour manager were walking along a beach. There, the tour manager tripped on a magic lamp buried partially in the sand, and out came a genie who said, I shall grant each of you one wish, whatever your heart desires. The singer said, I wish to have a private island where I would be treated like a king and adored by thousands of my biggest fans. And just like that, he was on an island, seated on a throne being fanned by palm leaves and adored by all. The guitar tech said, I wish I owned the nicest studio in the world that had a room with a thousand guitars. And then just like that, he was seated at an SSLG console, and when he turned around, the guitars hung from the walls as far as the eye could see, including ten different 1959 Les Pauls. Then the tour tour manager said, I want those two jackasses back here in 15 minutes. A tour manager has to be a people person. He has to be the business face of the group while still being a likable authority to the group. And Rock musicians being the target of uh, critical and social scrutiny are often quick and relentless to judge. A tour manager with thin skin usually gets eaten alive by either the band or the ruthless realities of the road. And for that reason, they don't last too long. And if they do, it's not uncommon for a band to rotate through a few road managers throughout the year. A front-of-house engineer mixes a band's live sound. When a group doesn't have a front-of-house engineer, the club almost always has a house sound person who can mix the band. The advantage to having a dedicated front-of-house engineer is that he will know the band's set, 
know their preferences, and afford a uniformity between shows in different venues. Because the front of house engineer only works during the show, it's not uncommon for the tour manager to double as a front of house engineer. Um, A stage manager is a luxury of sorts, but if you can afford one, he can make your show appear more professional. His jobs are to check the lines before the band starts, to ensure that the monitor mixes are right, to uh, position pedal boards and to tune guitars and play set lists, position microphones at the appropriate height, and a thousand other small, thankless tasks. Um, Where there is no stage manager, the band ends up doing all of these things. When a fan sees the band setting up their own equipment, It does show a human side to the band, but it does destroy any sort of mystique that the band would have had if a stage manager had set things up. And some argue that the stage manager makes the band seem like a bunch of prima donnas. However, the crowd is there to see a show. And mystery is an asset to building a fan base. It keeps new fans curious. And there have been nights when our stage manager got paid more than we did, so... They earn their keep just like anyone else. On nights when we didn't have a stage manager, and lately when I go out and play acoustically, I don't have a stage manager, um, what I do is I at least wear like a hat and a jacket when I'm setting things up so that the show person uh, appears different from the tech person. Um, The untrained eye can't tell the difference, but uh, your hardcore fans will notice. Um, But anyway, uh, if we're talking about getting new fans into the fold, this is a good thing to do. Whether you have a merch guy, having merchandise is critical to building a fan base. To start, I recommend uh, every group have at least a three-song CD, a t-shirt, and some postcards with a photo uh, that also has your band's website. Social media info is fine too, but realize that, you know, platforms have an average life of about six years. And uh, do you remember MySpace? Remember that? Okay, well, well, a dedicated URL that acts as a hub is sort of a better practice for your social media. Um, And the merch guy should be by the merchandise table at all times, and especially after the show. Uh, usually only one in 10 interactions at at the merch table results in a sale. However, uh, you can give the postcards away and encourage everyone who takes the time to check out the merch to sign up on your mailing list. Uh, Believe it or not, people still buy CDs, especially at shows. And I've tried to sell download cards at shows, and they don't really move as well as a physical disc. And I think people like to leave with something tangible. Uh, do like a T-shirt CD bundle for twenty bucks. Uh, you know, a, a dedicated merch person is the best way to facilitate this. At, at the very least, if you don't have a dedicated person, maybe you're out by yourself. I've done this many times. At least stand by your merch station after you play up until the headliner starts, or if you are headlining, hang out for thirty minutes after the show. Show don't just get packed up and say I gotta go. You know, just hang out a bit. People love getting their merchandise autographed. If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, entertainment has less to do with the entertainer than it does the fan. And people are your fans because they relate to what you are doing. They see a part of themselves in you. You are the person many of your fans wish they could be, but don't know how to be. 
The final role in a touring group is uh, the roadie. And uh, this is basically someone you hire to carry your gear from the trailer to the stage and the stage to the trailer and, and whatnot. Uh, band members usually help out in this capacity unless they're complete slouches. But uh, most venues will have stagehands that can assist. Uh, menu venues or, or lo lower venues that really don't offer much in the line of guarantees um, usually don't have helpers, and but everyone plays these starting out. So uh, make sure you haul your gear. The reason touring is exhausting is because a band is often trying to fill all six of these roles themselves and play a show and drive between 300 and 600 miles overnight to the next venue and try to get some sleep, maybe in a motel if you've made enough money the night before. And if you do have enough money for a motel room, there's usually two men to a bed and two guys on the floor. And if you sleep on the floor, make sure you pack some earmuffs so the cockroaches don't crawl into your ears.
what the band does on stage and off stage while on the road has sort of a direct impact on how effective the touring is. On stage, the band can perfect dynamics, uh, develop a stage presence, and to cultivate an impactful set list. And for the rest of the show, I'm going to talk about uh, the onstage and offstage uh, activities that can improve the experience of touring. First of all, a dead giveaway that a band is novice. Uh, it's, it's amateur hours. If, if they lack a sense of dynamics, a dynamics have two aspects, intra-band dynamics and room dynamics. Uh, within the band, the group should be able to perform with the appropriate intensity compared to each other. Here, the bass player isn't insisting on being the loudest thing on stage, or the drummer isn't hitting the snare drum with an insufficient force, and the band knows how to be loud together, the band knows how to be soft together. Room dynamics, uh, on the other hand, involves the band knowing how loud to be for a given room. Here, the band would know the difference between playing an outdoor festival and playing in a coffee shop. Cultivating dynamics as a band requires a lot of practice. This isn't to say that a band can't be loud or that a band should be soft. It means that a band should know how to be both if it wants to. A good indicator of your band's dynamics is how a house engineer responds to your set after you play. If he says, man, you guys basically mix yourselves. That means you've arrived at a good place, and your band has a sense of dynamics. Stage presence is an ongoing dialogue with your fans. There are no hard, fast rules with stage presence, but whatever you do up there, it should fit your genre. Generally, it's a good idea to have just one spokesperson from the stage, usually the lead singer. Uh, People are already distracted, and, and two spokespersons can be confusing. Um, and if you do drink alcohol on stage, keep it in a plastic, unmarked cup. Uh, There's nothing worse than being a beer salesman on stage. And, and check your tuning between songs uh, with a stage tuner as well. That's going to improve what you're doing. Um, an effective set list, like what you're playing during your show, this can also help grow your fan base. Uh, because it's rare that, one, a soundboard is both the way it was at soundcheck, and two, a room sounds remotely the same when it's packed with people, you don't want to open your set with a fan favorite or a single, at least not directly. I think it's a good idea to do a bit of a jam before launching into a high-energy song, just so the front-of-house engineer can get the levels up and running to the right the right place. And The first two or three songs, they should also seem like one song, without any delay between songs. This keeps the energy up and would-be fans interested. When you do take breaks to talk to the audience, be sure to tell people who you are and thank the other bands and tell people about your mailing list and your merchandise and encourage the folks to tip the bartenders. They like that, and... If the bartenders do well in tips, the chances are when the club owner asks them, hey, who do you think should come back you know, next quarter, they'll, they'll remember you. Uh, and, and close with either your single or a cover song. And unless you're a cover band, don't play more than one cover song. Uh, a lot of the time offstage, uh, touring feels like 
a game of survival. Remember Nick Brown, uh, Athenaeum drummer, used to joke that being on tour is like going out on the interstate, driving around the city for a few hours, and then going back into the same city. Uh, A lot of the Midwest and the Deep South is like that. As hard as it is to network on the road, I, th- I think it's a good idea to make friends with the bands with which you are sharing the stage. If you are an opening band, don't leave during the headlining band set. I mean, stay, watch, listen, take notes. There's a reason that you're the opening band and not the headlining band. Go up to the band after their set and thank them for having you, even if it was the club that, that threw you on the bill or, or somebody else. And it, And if you are the headliner, do the same with the opening acts. Thank them for opening. Uh, Make sure they're paid a just wage for their labor. Uh, Trade CDs. If they draw a crowd, take note of why and try to incorporate those things into your show. The time at the club is, is an excellent time to grow your fan base. I've already mentioned the importance of the merch table Uh, Fans love to talk to the bands they like. Um, Having a five-minute conversation with a hardcore fan is something that will probably stick with him for the rest of his life. Think about that. Giving courtesy to the club staff and club owner is a good idea. If a club owner is a fan, chances are you'll come back. Uh, Be considerate to bartenders, stagehands, and especially Uh, whoever is handling your sound if you don't have a tech. If radio is involved in the show, be sure to thank the DJs who are there. If a corporation or company has pulled some strings or paid for promotion, thank them from the stage, too. The point here is to express thanks and gratitude frequently and as much as possible. When you have between four to eight people in a van for 12 hours a day and then pretty much around each other for the other half of the day, personal conflicts are are going to happen. Uh, Diplomacy and conflict resolution skills pay dividends on the road. Uh, Being considerate of your band is a good policy, and this includes cleaning up after yourself, not drinking a big gulp before a 12-hour van ride, uh, and being reasonable with your, uh, well with your gas. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> flatulence is uh, a real problem on the road, and um, it's, it's the stuff of lore, too. Apparently, one band uh, discovered that you could seal a, a fart in Tupperware and mail it to your roommate back home, and this is the kind of stuff that, <laughs> that happens uh, behind the closed van doors. Anyway, um, being considerate. Um, you'll learn your touring group's individual idiosyncrasies over time. And sometimes personalities clash in a bad way. Uh, Sometimes people who normally get along hit some rough patches. And for me, what I've found effective is rather than trying to change people, I try to be as accepting and tolerant as reasonable. Hunter S. Thompson once described the music business as, quote, a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side, end quote. For every honest businessman you find in the music industry, you're sure to find at least one who is dishonest. Uh, most 
rest in that gray area where, where most business is, uh, a balancing of benefit and detriment. And really, that side of the music business isn't much different from the rest of the business world. Uh, even when your band has a valid position and an outside party has an equally valid position from a different point of view, uh, you know, conflicts are a part of doing business. However, there is an inequity of the value of labor in the music business. Some clubs think they are doing you a favor by having you play for exposure. <laughs> and yet they don't ask the same of the beer vendors or the electrician who wired the stage or to, to the landlord uh, to whom they pay rent. Uh, playing for a, a hefty percentage of the door or a guarantee is a, is a good starting point uh, from which to have a negotiation about uh, what you should be paid at a club. If you're playing a private event in a non-traditional venue, it's a good idea to at least ask for half up front, uh, lest you get stuck with the cost of supplying your own sound and the purchaser is someone no one can seem to find <laughs> at the end of the gig. It's happened more than I'd like to admit. Um, but anyway, after that gig at the Roadhouse, you know, we had no reason to go back there, and I, I doubt the place stayed in business much longer. And if it did, I'm almost certain it got wiped out uh, during Hurricane Katrina. And, and yet, if you were to ask me, what's the best show you ever played? I would say it was that Tough Man contest. Mostly because, well, it was weird, uh, but also because our little touring company was strong enough to handle it. We survived the toughest gig. We passed the audition. <laughs>